trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Again, out of the many voices that you could choose to listen to, because you have those choices, I appreciate you tuning in this program. Thank you so much. We will be reveling in wrong think at uh, previously unknown levels today. Maybe I'm just saying that because it's Friday and I'm feeling a little bit froggy, but uh, really have some fantastic information and commentaries to share with you. Um, I, I'm always on the lookout for, for these kind of things throughout the week. And I appreciate uh, those of you in my listening audience who come across something interesting say, hey, Brian, I wanted to send this your way. I appreciate you more than you know. Just because, look, I'm keeping my eyes on the horizon. I'm looking high and low, trying to find relevant information. But I'm one person. And the more eyeballs and the more active minds that are out there looking for truth and helping to promote and publish truth, well, the better off we are. So I want to start with some unsolicited advice. This came into my email inbox earlier this morning, and I just thought it was so good. Uh, Michael Herman on his Substack says, hey, do me a favor. Do me a favor, won't you? Starting today with everything you see in the media, everything you see online, all information flow you absorb into your brain, voluntarily or even involuntarily, ask one single question. Why do they want me to hear this? Now, there's more wisdom in that than than you might think at first blush. Now, he says you could phrase the question, why are they telling me this? Or why do they want me to know this? But his point is, Because there's a reason for every story that we are fed. And not all those reasons are beneficial or benevolent or even forthright. So you should be doing this. Even as you're reading his article, he says you should be asking, why does Herman want me to know about this? Why does he bring this up? I would say do the same thing. Anything that I share. Why is Brian telling us this? Why is he wanting me to hear this? It's a fair question. And it will save you from a lot of trouble of of being led down the primrose path by people who may or may not have your best interests in mind. I can tell you, but of course I have your best interests in mind. But, you know, anybody will tell you that, including the mugger. Look, I just don't want to hurt you if you just hand me your wallet, you know. It's just your best interest I'm looking out for. You know that's not true. So... Get in the habit of saying, well, why, why do they want me to hear this? Understand, the news cycle is dominated by just a handful of stories. Why are those the stories that are chosen? Out of all the things going on in the world, they only have, you know, a few minutes to condense all the important stuff down into the news stories that will actually air. And by the way, if you, if you watch this like on television news, you'll notice that most stories merit somewhere between two or three sentences and a little bit of video clip. Very rarely do they go into detail. Why is this story chosen? Why is it framed in this way? Oh, I know. It sounds like work. It sounds like you're being suspicious about everything. Well, I am. And with good reason. There's an awful lot of deception. We're not expected to believe that, you know, uh, the people, for instance, uh, uh, Michael... Michael Herman points out, you know, George Stephanopoulos. Oh, he's been a very, you know, solid commentator on ABC for years and years and years. But he was a Clinton shill beforehand. 
do you think he just became a, a totally, you know, objective individual and, and left any advocacy aside? No, he was, he was a far-left operative who did not become a neutral observer. There's a reason he's where he is. There's a reason he talks about the things he does. And this is true across the spectrum. Anyway, I thought it was very solid advice. That's why I'm sharing it. Now, here's one that uh, I, I think you're going to find really refreshing. We've got a Category 5 election year hurricane about to roar over the horizon. Oh, we've all been hearing it for a while. Paul Rosenberg's latest essay is just a gem. I'll need reasons to believe the next vote count. Now, Paul says, look, I'm not a political guy. Fundamentally, I'm a voluntarist, which means that I want to leave political rule behind in toto. But I also live among good people who still believe in political processes. So, as I run across contributions I may be able to make, he says, I'm considering offering them. I consider offering them, rather. Today, he says, I have something. Perhaps it will make uh, next year's political game a little less bad, and perhaps it won't, but he says at least this is the right time to try. I'll start by noting that the vote counting in 2020 smelled, and badly. We all saw the vote projections reverse themselves between 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning. The next day we learned that multiple vote counting operations were simultaneously paused, and these were not pre-scheduled pauses for the first time I can remember. We furthermore saw t video from Georgia of poll workers pulling suitcases full of ballots from under tables to be counted during the shutdown hours after the election judges were removed, and we had many additional claims of fraud. Now, he says some of those claims were better, some worse, but most would have been taken seriously by our parents' generation, and none of them were taken seriously by the current batch of elites. But here's the unique part. Vote rigging, of course, has a long history. He says, I haven't dug deeply into the details yet from 2020, but what was unique about 2020 was the public bragging afterward. On February 5th of 2021, Time magazine ran an article entitled The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. Do you remember seeing this? I remember people saying, folks, they're telling you they did it. This piece, Paul says, is effectively the enlightened class bragging about how they fortified the 2020 election against the ignorant masses of America. In that article, you'll find passages like these, quote, an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans, or in which the forces of labor came together with the forces of capital to keep the peace and oppose Trump's assault on democracy. Or they got states to change voting systems and laws and helped secure hundreds of millions in public and private funding. Or they fended off voter suppression lawsuits, recruited armies of poll workers, and got millions of people to vote by mail for the first time. Now, Paul says those passages, of course, are surrounded with plausible reasons to believe it was all purely righteous. But he says, I'll leave you to read it and decide on your own. Please, however, keep two things in mind as you do. Watch the timeline of the election, the aftermath, and especially what was done prior to the election. It's pertinent, to, it's pertinent, rather, to any conclusion you draw. And imagine the scenario in reverse with Donald Trump Jr. influencing right-leaning corporations. This, again, is pertinent. He says it's perhaps an even more telling fact that people have been made to reject any mention of vote miscounting, not because of facts, but because of fears. He says the narrative overlords of the United States have learned that compliance can be obtained most easily via the application of social pain. 
That, as we all saw, is how the COVID narrative was maintained. If you didn't toe the party line, you were made to suffer harsh social discrimination. Every nasty label from grandma killer to anti-vaxxer, along with the ubiquitous conspiracy theorist, was thrown at people who dared question Lord Fauci and his magical pronouncements. COVID compliance was not obtained by getting people to review scientific literature. It came by making them fear social rejection. And so it was for questioning the election of 2020. And so we can expect for 2024. Because the belief of the ruling class is fundamentally this. So long as we make it painful for them to believe, they never will. And so, he says, the next year's vote counters will have to do something very convincing if they want me to take them seriously. I think this is some very solid intellectual ammunition. And at least it's something worth, worth thinking about. One of the things I love about Paul Rosenberg is, number one, he is not enemy-driven in his thinking. In other words, he doesn't define himself by who he's against or what he's against. He has a, a gentle, and I would even say a loving approach in tackling even very thorny topics like this one. But those thoughts that he offers about, look, the two things you got to keep in mind, watch the timeline of the election, the aftermath, but especially remember what was being done prior to the election. What was the conduct of the people who are assuring us that, oh, there was never any doubt about this and, you know, the election was as pure as the driven snow? Because their actions would seem to indicate that they were ready to do whatever it takes. By any means necessary, they were going to save, you know, our democracy from Donald Trump. And again, look at the situation in reverse. What if it was Donald Trump Jr. influencing right-leaning corporations to save the country? He's right when he says that 2020 election stinks to high heaven. And the people who've assured us that, uh, oh, there was nothing wrong with it, they haven't so much as tried to convince us as just uh, threaten us with, well, you know, you'll be, you'll be a denier. And there's nothing worse than being a denier, a climate denier, an election denier, and so forth. I know, because I, part of my job is tracking a lot of the mainstream media stuff and, and uh, refuting or at least uh, uncovering some of the deception there. This is one of their favorite tactics. So my advice, of course, is, you know, beware of getting caught up in the whole election year hurricane in the first place. But if you're going to do it, you need to do it with your eyes wide open, your head on straight, and you got to maintain your rationality. People are going to abuse power, whatever power they have. People will lie, or at least they'll tell others what they think they want to hear. But more importantly, politics is just one facet of our lives. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a real quick shout out to the sponsors who make this program possible. And if you will go to my show notes at The Brian Hyde Show, there you will find links that will take you directly to lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com. That's my friend John Harvey, the Modern Conservative Podcast. Also, Iron Sight Brewing Company. This is a company John just started up, and it's a, it's a subscription coffee company. Now, if you're not a coffee drinker, that's fine. They do have some really cool mugs and stuff that I assume you could use with things other than coffee, but um, also quiltandsew.com. 
These are my sponsors. Again, you'll find if you go to the BrianHydeShow.com, uh, my, my web guy, Kendall, Kendall, thank you so much, has put together a lovely banner that uh, will showcase them for you if you want to support this program. Do business with the sponsors who are making it possible. So I want to go a little nostalgic here. And, and I think this is going to hit a nerve for a lot of us. A Charlie Brown Christmas. I know, you're thinking of, I can hear the piano music. I, I can see the kids doing that silly dance. It was pretty primitive as far as uh, animation goes. Annie Holmquist, writing on her substack, talks about how a Charlie Brown Christmas <clears throat> symbolizes the triumph of common sense. And this is some behind-the-scenes stuff that I did not realize about that uh, TV, you know, that Christmas TV special, which basically birthed all other TV specials. And the anniversary, it'll be the 58th anniversary, coming up tomorrow. Now, most Americans know the plot well, right? The despondent Charlie Brown who just can't work up his Christmas cheer amid crass commercialism. The confident, obnoxious Lucy who finds the allegedly perfect solution to Charlie Brown's gloom. The ill-fated Christmas pageant, which confirms Charlie Brown's status as a loser. And finally, the rebirth of Christmas cheer that comes through Linus's recitation of the original Christmas story. But while the basic story is a charming tale with which many of us can empathize, she says, I find the backstory of A Charlie Brown Christmas almost more so. Now, for those unfamiliar with the tale, A Charlie Brown Christmas went from conception to classic in a, manner of, in a matter of months, something that just doesn't happen in the world of television production. What few people know is that before the special aired on television, Peanuts creator Charles Schultz and his crew believed that their Christmas special was following in the footsteps of Charlie Brown himself and was doomed to be a failure. Just like in Charlie Brown's Christmas story, those who had commissioned Schultz and his crew to do the show were quick to pile on and express their disappointment with the television product. Mark Evanier, a, an animator and historian, explains this disappointment in A Christmas Miracle, The Making of a Charlie Brown Christmas. He says the networks were against it. It went against the conventional thinking of, at the time, of what a children's special, a Christmas special, had to be. Fred Silverman, a CBS executive at the time, said, There was specific negative comments about the music, you know, the piano music, some of the voicing, which sounded kind of amateurish, and indeed it was amateurish because a lot of them were kid actors. But it was a commitment, and the film was made. Producer Lee Mendelson continues the story. They said, Well, it's on the TV guide logs, we've got to put it on the air, but... Nice try, you know. We'll put it on once, and that will be it. So we figured it was over, and it was done. I didn't realize they were so pessimistic, you know, about how a Charlie Brown Christmas would, would go over. But as Annie points out, as we now know, Schultz, his crew, and the executives from CBS were dead wrong. The program became an overnight hit, pulling in almost half the TV ratings for the evening. In fact, the show went on to win both an Emmy and a Peabody Award and has been broadcast every Christmas since that memorable one in 1965. I find it remarkable because, uh, not to brag, but I was born the day after that uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special aired for the very first time. Sorry, I'm just waiting for you to go ahead and write down. Oh, so Brian's got a birthday coming up. Anyway, the reason I find the backstory behind a Charlie Brown Christmas so fascinating, says Annie, is because of how it highlights the great disconnect between the ordinary average American and those in life who pull the strings. Now, Charles Schultz, she says, is the epitome of the average American. 
He had a simple, common sense, yet often forgotten message to tell in A Charlie Brown Christmas. And he insisted on sticking with that message and that simplistic style, even when it looked like it wouldn't get off the ground. In other words, he was a man who stuck to his principles and wouldn't compromise them, even when they might land him in hot water. Now, the bigwigs at CBS, however, thought they knew better, and if time hadn't constrained them, they likely would have attempted to rewrite Schultz's simple, common-sense production for something flashy and more politically correct. They were, in a sense, the precursor of today's marketing elites, who all seem to know what's best for middle America to digest and swallow. Just as an aside, can you imagine what a Charlie Brown Christmas would look like today? If, if someone were to try to produce a show along that, certainly the reading of Luke chapter 2 would not be taking place. And I'm sure that uh, there would be more than a few, uh, how can I put this delicately, diverse characters that we would be force-fed, you know, to show the inclusivity and the diversity and equity of having them on the special. So in the current culture of chaos, Annie Holmquist says, it's easy to throw up our hands and give in to the demands of those who stand out and seemingly call the shots. But instead of giving in to political correctness, do we need to take a page from Charles Schultz's book? In the end, will gentle persistence, common sense, and faithful adherence to solid principles be the pathway to success and fulfillment? I sure like her style of writing. And I, and I really appreciate learning a little bit more about a Charlie Brown Christmas just because, man, this has been a part of my life for, well, as long as I can remember. In fact, what, what's really ironic, and it's one of my most prized possessions, is a 1965 calendar. It's a Charlie Brown calendar. Not specifically Christmas, but just, you know, peanuts. It's, it's the calendar. But uh, my parents, apparently, my mom obtained that to the year that I was born, and um, I've kept it ever since. It's kind of... Kind of fun to take a look at that every so often. So you can check out this article for yourself if you want to go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Just click on today's, today's show notes. These are for December 8th, 2023. And dig in. All right, a couple other things that are going on here. Um, I'm going to touch just briefly on this one. Uh, Kurt Malberg is talking about climate hypocrites everywhere. This was from intellectualtakeout.org. And, you know, there's a big two-week meeting that's going on right now in Dubai. And it's all the oh-so-wealthy people, by the way, who all flew there in Learjets to, uh, to talk about why we, you and me, you know, the simple people, should be eating bugs and not driving our cars. I love how Kurt starts off his article, though, with a quote from Elon Musk. What I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. <laughs> that's, that's harsh, but it's true. So said Elon Musk last week in a colorful interview that almost broke the internet. Replying to questions from New, York's time, New York Times columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin about an advertiser boycott of pro-free speech platform X, the tech tycoon added, I care about the reality of goodness and not the perception of it. Now, Musk's words were a timely, if brutal, wake-up call for a woke Western culture obsessed with appearance but ho-hum on substance. Hypocrisy is the word we use to describe the kind of virtue-signaling vacuity so common, so commonplace today, and nowhere is woke hypocrisy more clearly seen than in the climate movement. Now, I'm going to tap the brakes here and pick this up in the next segment because I'm, I'm coming up fast on the end of this one. 
But that point about people are more concerned with looking good. And I'm sorry, look, this may land on some toes. Okay, so you, you might feel the sting of what I'm about to say. But if making sure you've got the right avatar, the right flags reflected in your avatar to show that you too are on board with the current thing, I'm sorry, but that's virtue signaling. But Brian, I'm trying to raise awareness and let people know that this is an issue out there. Of course you are. All I'm saying is that's a whole lot easier than the trouble of actually living as a decent person who does right, even when it's the hard thing to do, and speaks the truth, even when it's painful or could be costly. In other words, it's a show that's being put on. I'm not saying that you need to be, you know, wandering around in sackcloth and ashes or whatever. Just understand if you're putting on some kind of a performative display of look how good I am you might want to check your intentions and re-examine your heart it's kind of like the men at work sign where I come from we could tell by watching them we didn't need a sign this is the Brian Hyde show this is the Brian Hyde show Hey, welcome back to the show. Going back to this article by Kurt Malberg. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. Climate hypocrites everywhere. And he's talking about the World Economic Forum, among others, which, for instance, claims that uh, one of its main aims is to limit global temperature rise and stave off disaster. I don't know if they've been paying attention to some of the activity on the sun, but uh, did you know the sun directly affects the climate, not just of Earth, but every single planet in our solar system? So when the sun has a huge hole that's showing in the, in the, you know, the huge coronal hole pointing towards Earth and the solar wind is increasing, what do we need to do? Oh, yes, higher taxes. That's, that's how we control the sun. Not. Or as, as Kurt puts it, if only. He says, as the World Economic Forum's annual summit in 2022 in Davos, uh, at that summit, conference delegates snubbed Switzerland's Green Railway Network, and instead they arrived in the Alpine Resort town in 1,040 private jets. Now, the collective CO2 emissions from those jets equaled what 350,000 gasoline-powered cars would have exhaled over the same week-long period. Turns out that climate hypocrites are everywhere. John Kerry, during his first 18 months as the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, clocked up enough private jet travel to produce 325 metric tons of CO2. In one eminently laughable incident, Kerry flew to Iceland by private jet to be decorated with the Arctic Circle Award for his work on climate change. He later defended the decision as the only choice for someone like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. Right? Rules for thee, but not for me. I believe is what he was saying. In 2021, billionaire Bill Gates published a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, in which he urged world leaders to aim for zero emissions within 30 years to avert an alleged global catastrophe. Now, what Gates failed to mention in his book was that he owns not one, but four private jets. Elsewhere, he's called his jet collection his guilty pleasure. Former Vice President Al Gore has a built-in, has built rather a post-White House career on climate exaggeration. At the most recent Davos example, for example, he claimed that climate change is boiling the oceans and can be expected to create one billion climate refugees. His hyperventilation notwithstanding, 
Gore lives in a 20-room mansion in Tennessee that consumes roughly 34 times the energy of the average American home. And though he justifies his lifestyle by buying carbon credits to offset his carbon footprint, Gore has made these purchases from companies he has heavily invested in and which have profited bountifully from his climate activism. Now, if you want a longer list of climate hypocrites, well, he says look no longer, look no further rather than, than Hollywood. Director Steven Spielberg says he's terrified by global warming, yet in just two months during 2022, he spent over $116,000 on fuel for his private jet and emitted 180 tons of carbon dioxide. Taylor Swift has called climate change horrific, but she regularly lends her private jet out to friends. According to an analysis by Yard, Swift's jet has disgorged 1,200 times the average person's total annual emissions, making Swift the worst emission offender among all celebrity jet owners. But hey, she did get Time's Person of the Year award, so she's got that going for her. Prince Harry recently wrote on Instagram that every choice, every footprint, every action makes a difference for the planet. Two days later, however, he and his wife, Meghan Markle, flew by private jet to Ibiza, and then less than a week later, they took a private jet to the French Riviera. In an article entitled, Climatism has gone from virtue signaling to vice signaling, environmentalist Michael Schellenberger this week delivered a devastating broadside against climate hypocrites, such as those listed above, when he wrote, flying on private jets to climate conference to announce plans to make energy even more expensive for working people is bread and circuses, except there's no bread. And the circus consists of rich people celebrating their wealth, morality, and superiority. End quote. Now, Schellenberger also said hypocrisy is how weak leaders flex their power. He cited a new study in the peer-reviewed journal Personality and Individual Differences, which enrolled as research participants over 800 environmental activists from Germany. The study found a strong association between environmental activism and dark triad traits, which Schellenberger listed as Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism, as well as left-wing authoritarianism. These findings suggest that environmental activism, in addition to its potential positive outcomes, may also have a dark side in terms of the activist's personality. Schellenberger can hardly be accused of being a climate denier. He began his polemic by arguing that climate change is real and and caused mainly by humans and something we should seek less of. But what he critiqued was the double standards of those allegedly fighting it on the front lines. It's not virtue signaling, it's vice signaling, Schellenberger boldly clarified. We've gone from lamenting climate hypocrisy to celebrating it, looking good while doing evil, as Musk put it. Or in the words of Jesus, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Kurt Malberg says, though I have my doubts, it is possible the climate hypocrites have read the science correctly. If they have all the more reason for them to practice what they preach. But until they do, not a word of what they say deserves to be taken seriously. The rest of us will go on stressing about a coming climate apocalypse, or stressing less about a coming climate apocalypse, and more of enjoying our lives. Seems reasonable to me. By the way, I don't know who it is. Somebody in Utah has put up a billboard Phil Lyman, who I believe is running for governor in Utah next year, 
actually had had featured this billboard. I, I can't tell exactly. It's somewhere along the Wasatch Front, but this billboard simply says, sleep well tonight. There is no climate crisis. I imagine that makes a few of the true believers heads want to explode as they're driving past this billboard, denying the very reason for their, you know, virtue. I'm driving an electric car for crying out loud. Can't you see what a good person I am? Yeah, I have I have a bit of a problem with the, the climate activists simply because so often it seems like uh, they become very antagonistic. It's not just a little, you know, moral superiority. It's you know, if you if you deny climate change, you know, you are akin to, well, I don't even know what they would consider. I would say, I was going to say you're akin to a child molester, but frankly, we kind of celebrate that now, right? Hey, what what are you bagging on these minor attracted persons for? That's, that's not very nice. I guess you, you could be called a MAGA activist. I don't know. What is the new epithet today other than denier? Look, I believe climate change is real in the sense that the Earth's climate is never stuck in one place and one place only. We've had small and large ice ages. We've had, you know, hot periods and and cool periods that have come and gone. And frankly, we're only beginning to understand some of the science behind this and some of the principles that are at work including the fact that the sun influences the climate of every single planet in our solar system. See, the giveaway to me, or at least what tips the hand of those who are out there stumping for, we've got to do something about climate change, is the fact that it comes down to, I need more power and I need more of your money taken in the form of taxes in order to address this problem. Well, wait a minute, don't they say that for everything else too? And the belief that if we just give enough power to the right people and enough money to the right people, somehow they're going to actually control the powers of the universe. Yeah, I don't think that's very possible. Now, having said that, I'm not going to be the guy who's out there burning tires because I'm trying to get rid of them. I want to be a good steward for what I believe God has blessed us with. I want to use the resources wisely and for good purposes rather than just leaving, you know, strip mines everywhere and scorched earth, you know, in my wake. But this sure has the the feel of a manipulative type of uh, crisis that's brought into existence for the, number one, for the purpose of making people afraid, right? The the oceans are going to boil, as as Al Al Gore is saying. I can't believe he even claimed that. But it's also, we need control. More control over people, more control over energy, more control over their resources, over the means of production, over their ability to transport themselves. Don't you realize, citizen, yes, we've taken away your car. We've taken away your ability to move around freely. We've taken away your ability to to make a profitable living or to eat healthy food. But don't you feel good? Look at how you're saving the environment. I'm sorry, that's, that's rather small consolation you know, in return for losing freedoms and having things taken away that uh, really they rightfully shouldn't be taking away. So I guess this is my solution. Be a good steward, but do not believe the people who are trying to make you afraid and trying to get you to give them more power and more control over your pocketbook. I suspect we're going to all have to make some pretty serious adaptation 
in the days ahead because it seems like the uh, elite are pretty serious about this agenda, meaning they're going to force it on us one way or the other. I think if we cooperate, we can develop some pretty good workarounds. But it's something we should get started on probably sooner than later. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's our final segment in today's show. I got a couple great articles that I want to point you toward. I'm going to start with the article of the day. I have uh, really enjoyed the substack of Margaret Anna Alice. And it's just because she just has a marvelous way with words and uh, and, and especially in, in in directing those words to the people who really need to hear them. She has a letter to the amnesty demanders. And this is for the people who pushed the COVID narrative, who enforced the lockdown policies, basically the people who visited all of the abuse, the experts who insisted that we do what they say and not question them, you know, lest we be, you know, labeled deniers. Well, she's got a great response to them. And, you know, I... I want to be the kind of person, I believe in the golden rule. So, I, you know, when it comes to the idea that uh, I will forgive as I want to be forgiven, I want to be a forgiving person. I really do. But I want to extend that forgiveness to those who actually are sorry for what they've done. And that doesn't necessarily mean, well, you'd never forgive somebody who's unrepented. All I'm saying is when it comes to the people who pushed all of the COVID policies and the narrative and enforced it and did everything in their power to either make people afraid or to punish them for deviating from the narrative. Those people are still in the position to do the same thing again. That's unacceptable. So the forgiveness that I would like to extend would be a lot easier to extend if I knew that the people who actually were responsible for this either were sorry or were unable to do it again. In other words, separated from power. Now, I've heard Dr. Fauci is actually going to have to testify. And he is quite the tap-dancing little dude, I'll tell you. I've seen other interviews. Well, I've seen also, you know, Rand Paul grilling him in, in Senate hearings. But I would love to see that man answer for what he's done. And it's it's time. It's past time. The problem here and the danger that that Margaret Anna Alice points out is for the rest of us, it's very easy for us to forget what was done or to gloss it over as, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. It was that bad. Millions of lives were destroyed. Millions of livelihoods were destroyed. We cannot allow the same approach to be taken again. And right now, there are still people claiming they can do it. I mean, New York's Governor Hochul, Hochul, I'm I'm saying her name incorrectly, I'm sure, but, you know, she sued. Well, we need to be able to involuntarily quarantine people if necessary. By the way, that's not the only state that is claiming these powers. Beware. Don't be scared, but be aware. All right. And so that's the article of the day. Here's the one I wanted to share with you that uh, this is another great one from Barry Brownstein. Uh, this was published in the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. Why Ordinary People Enable Totalitarians, Part 1. 
Cicero said history casts light on reality and is a guide to life. And Barry says the wisdom gained by understanding the past helps prevent the same errors from being repeated. He then talks about Sebastian Hafner at pursuing answers to the questions of how the Nazis rose to power in Germany and why the German people did not stop them. In 1939, he wrote but never finished his partially autobiographical book, Defying Hitler, a memoir. Hafner's probing analysis led him to conclude that the choices and mindset of ordinary Germans were responsible for Hitler's coming to power. Germans were enablers and victims of Hitler. You understand that? Now, Hafner was actually the pseudonym of Raymond Pretzel. Hafner received training as a lawyer, but circumstances compelled him to pursue a career as a historian and journalist. He fled Nazi Germany for England in 1938. So why should we care about Hafner's explanation of historical events in terms of the mindsets of ordinary people? After all, as Hafner observed, the great man theory of history is widely held. Quote, if you read ordinary history books which it is often overlooked, contain only the scheme of events, not the events themselves, you get the impression that no more than a few dozen people are involved who happen to be at the helm of the ship of state and whose deeds and decisions form what is called history. End quote. Barry Brownstein says if you're looking for the great men, Hafner wrote, you will believe the history of the 1930s is a kind of chess game among Hitler, Mussolini, Chiang Kai-shek, Roosevelt, Chamberlain, Deladier, and a number of other men whose names are on everybody's lips. When we accept the great man theory, ordinary people have little responsibility. They are seen in Hafner's words as anonymous others who seem at best to be the objects of history, pawns in the chess game, who may be pushed forward or left standing, sacrificed or captured. Now, Hapner rejected the great man principle and articulated the simple truth that decisive historical events take place among us, the anonymous masses. This is how he explained it. Quote, the most powerful dictators, ministers, and generals are powerless against the simultaneous mass decisions taken individually and almost unconsciously by the population at large. It is characteristic of these decisions that they do not manifest themselves as mass movements or demonstrations. Mass assemblies are quite incapable of independent action. End quote. That's a pretty interesting thought. And I'll tell you why this is sobering, at least to, to me, is that means that each one of us bears responsibility for what we are willing to tolerate in terms of the official policies. Hafner, you know, on his part, was born in 1907. He describes his experience as a schoolboy during the First World War, how it shaped his mindset. For schoolboys, real life seemed too ordinary, says Barry Brownstein. One went to school, learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, and later Latin and history. One played with friends, one went out with one's parents, but was that a life? Life gained its thrill the day its color from the current military events. This is Hafner describing it. And he described himself as a war fan just as one as a soccer fan. Hafner didn't get involved in hate campaigns, but he had a fascination with the game of war, which, according to certain mysterious rules, the numbers of prisoners taken, miles advanced, fortifications seized, and ships sunk, played almost the same role as goals in soccer and points in boxing. Just as an aside, do you know people who are like that? Today, I was once like that. I thought war was cool, my friends, and I, that's what we wanted to play. Recess time, hey, let's pretend we're at war, and, and so we would. 
War attitudes inculcated in the minds of those schoolboys were precursors to the Nazis' zest for action and its intolerance and cruelty toward internal opponents. Rather, Now, Barry points out, potential Hitlers have always lived among us. But England and France didn't turn to one, so what was different in Germany? Now, remember, after the First World War, in Germany, peace came with hyperinflation, which obliterated all wealth. Hafner described what Austrian economists would call a high time preference among German youth. Amid all the misery, despair, and poverty, there was an air of lightheaded youthfulness, licentiousness, and carnival. Money, he reported, was spent, was spent as never before or since, and not on the things old people spend their money on. Now, he goes on to talk about uh, monetary stability returning and how Germany became a nation of passive consumers of, of external events, a population unable to find an internal purpose or make meaning of their lives. Hafner says a generation of young Germans had become accustomed to having the entire content of their lives delivered gratis, so to speak, by the public sphere. All the raw material for their deeper emotions, for love and hate, joy and sorrow, but also all their sensations and thrills, accompanied though they might be by poverty, hunger, death, chaos and peril. But now that these deliveries suddenly ceased... People were left helpless, impoverished, robbed, and disappointed. They had never learned to live from within themselves. How to make an ordinary life great, beautiful, and worthwhile. How to enjoy it and make it interesting. So they regarded the end of the political tension and a return of private liberty not as a gift, but as deprivation. Holy cow, what, a, what an interesting explanation. Now, there's a lot more to this article, and I'm going to let you discover it for yourself. But I want you to understand that that the decisions that influence the course of history arise out of the individual experiences of thousands or millions of individuals. If Hafner, a keen student of history, were alive today, he would wave a yellow flag, says Barry Brownstein. Purposelessness and cowardness can lead us to accept the ruinous totalitarian siren call just because people are trying to fill that inner void. Kind of makes you want to stop and think, okay, well, what's my life based upon? And this is, this is where it really struck the chord with me. Because I am all about encouraging you, my listener, to try to discover purpose in your life. And not just purpose, your purpose. Something happens when you tap into the realization that you weren't just born to, you know, go to school, get a job, make money, buy things, and then, you know, retire and run out the clock until you die. There is something here in this realm that you are supposed to accomplish. It could be liberating the captive. It could be educating the ignorant. It could be healing the sick or creating beauty. I don't know what it is, but you do at some level. Find out what it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.